Uh, let's uh, dive in again to uh, Romans, and uh, we are going to go back to Romans chapter 1. Last week, we started uh, the sermon series in chapter 16, looking at some of the names and, and unpacking how Paul's listing of folks, the diversity of the five congregations, the house churches that he's writing to that make up the collective fellowship of the church in Rome, uh, have a lot of diversity, have a lot of background and a lot of uh, racial and economic, some of them uh, in the household of one of the highest and most well-respected folks in the uh, Emperor Claudius's uh, retinue. And so we have everything from folks who could walk the seven hills to those who spent all of their lives right along the river uh, working in uh, the most uh, difficult circumstances. Uh, the whole breadth of Roman society listed. And of course, that creates a challenge, a challenge to how that church will function, not just socioeconomically, but also racially. And we remember that there had been uh, about six or seven years where the church in Rome had been exclusively Gentile, though started, no doubt, by uh, Jewish uh, folks coming back from the Pentecost experience or some evidence that maybe even Peter was there for a brief time. And so we have uh, a period where after starting with the Jewish uh, folks in Rome, the uh, expats there, that uh, under Claudius, because there was some rioting and some difficulties, uh, some of it perhaps because of discussions about the role of Christ uh, and whether or not Jesus was the answer to their messianic hopes, all of the Jewish folks had been kicked out of Rome for the better part of six years. And so now they're drifting back in, and things have taken on a very non-Jewish flavor in the church. Some of those traditions aren't being held up. Uh, I said it would be kind of like, for whatever reason, we were talking in the men's group, if all of the American evangelicals were kicked out of the United States for six or seven years for some reason or another, and we came back to our churches, and they've been run almost exclusively by African-American and Hispanic and uh, Chinese brothers and sisters, and we came back to a church that might look very different culturally, than what we left six or seven years before, and how that might feel the same but different. And the way we do things would be changed by their own uh, background and culture. So these Jewish folks are coming back into a church that feels very different than it did when they left six or seven years ago. And some of the distinctives of what it meant to be Jewish and to be a Jewish expat around the Roman Empire seemed to be lost. And so Paul is writing a letter, both affirming the wonderful history and value of what it means to be a covenant people and the long history that the Jewish people have in God's covenant and kingdom, while also expanding into the, uh, the kingdom of God, the fact that there will now be Jew and Gentile in a fashion that will not have priority and not the human sense of levels and significance and power and authority. And so we have uh, this reality underpinning Paul's letter. This morning, we, as we look at chapter one, I want to also remind us what the big picture is. Sometimes it feels like 
uh, we do detailed studies of Romans, and by the time you get done with 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, by the time we get to 12, we're a little exhausted. So you're going to see as I go through this sermon series, there are times in which in the early chapters, I keep running back to remind us where we're going in the later chapters, the practical implications of these wonderful doctrines of grace. And uh, when we get to the later chapters, I will be constantly running back and referring to the earlier chapters, lest we think the work of being the church together is done by our own efforts uh, without the uh, affirmation and reality of God's unconditional grace uh, affirmed to us in the earlier chapters. And so just as a way to, uh, before we read the scripture, remind ourselves, Paul's goal here in writing this is the unity of the church, is how we solve the problem of diverse human beings from culture and race and gender and economics and background into a new community. And so verse 15, uh, in chapter 15, uh, verses 5 and 6, Paul makes the point that his desire is that these two groups and all of the individuals, uh, Roman and Jew alike, live in harmony with one another in accordance with who they are in Christ, with one voice glorifying God. And that is going to take us into an understanding of the book of Romans. The last thing I want to do before I read the text is give you an outline for the book. So if you've got pencil, you want to take a note, this is how we're going to look at the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to see chapters 1 through 4 as an unveiling of God's righteousness. 1 through 4 is an unveiling of God's righteousness, and that is God's right action, God's engagement with creation uh, and with his people. In 5 through 8, we're going to look at the new covenant and new creation. So God's righteous action leads then to new covenant and new creation, which is expounded in chapters 5 through 8. In chapters 9 through 11, God is going to, uh, through Paul, talk about God's faithfulness and Israel's unbelief. He's going to address how moving from new creation to new covenant God's faithfulness, and Israel's unbelief. And then, so, uh, and then wrapping it up, starting in chapter 12 through 16, the faithfulness and fellowship in the kingdom of God. Open to all, of course. So one through four, unveiling of God's righteousness. Five through eight, from new covenant to new creation. Nine through 11, God's faithfulness and Israel's unbelief and 12 through 16, faithfulness and the fellowship in the kingdom of God for all. This morning, we will start all the way back in chapter 1. Give me an opportunity now to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 this morning, not through 8, just 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the affirmation of the gospel, even in the opening seven verses of Romans. We thank you for your pursuit and your love. We thank you for the promise of a king who has returned, who has been shown to be right and good by his death and resurrection and enthronement. We ask that we, too, might delight, take greater confidence and peace in the truth of who you are. And whatever is said this morning that is not useful for the building up of your people and who you are and who they are in you, may those words be quickly forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So when I was growing up, maybe I was uh, in seminary. I wasn't very grown up when I went to seminary. Uh, the, uh, there were a lot of bracelets going around. I think most of us can remember who were a few years old. Uh, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And there is uh, great wisdom in that. It was uh, meant to be popular. It was meant to, to help young people think through their life through a Christian lens and through uh, a set of ethics and a set of uh, actions that would impact Brace the best of who Christ is. And there's nothing that I want to do to disparage that great uh, idea of trying to get at our youngest age a thought process that gives us a sense of who Jesus is and how Jesus can and should impact the decisions and the way we live. There is an earnest desire to apply those kingdom ethics. In the best moments, that works against, of course, some of the underlying challenges in any given culture and society. My own uh, calls to action or calls to not act because of the social expectations around me. Those things which my society says are perfectly fine, but God says are a bad idea. The things my society says are a bad idea that God says are the right ways to interact with one another. We all know what those pressures are, and whether one is uh, liberal or conservative or some combination of the two, uh, or uh, a liberal libertarian or a conservative libertarian, we all have ways in which those cultural ideas, at their best, are portions of the overall ethic of who God is. And so, I want to suggest that there might be a way in which we could strengthen WWJD that reflects Paul's own definition for himself here in verse 1. You see, what would it look like, and again, it's not as neat on a bracelet, what would Jesus have me do? Now, the reason I say it that way is that there is an expectation that it's probably not a choice. 
that in fact it's really a direction. It is what God expects me to do and would have me do at any given moment. And Paul, in the second word of Romans, describes himself not as a servant, but as a slave. Now, to be clear here, we need to recognize that that slavery is not what the Romans thought slavery was, and it's certainly not what we had in the United States. It's not uh, in the United States where we designated a group of people inferior and designed to be slaves by God. That's certainly not what Paul's talking about when he says slave. But also the Roman sense uh, didn't give much identity or purpose uh, to the slave other than uh, simply being a means to his owner's end. But the Hebrew tradition of the use of that word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament lists people as slaves who were Moses, Joshua, David, and the prophets. That is to say that the same Greek phrase using the word a doulos of God, a slave to God, is an indication of one who is in loyal, permanent, and graciously administered service to God. Paul is pushing against the Roman understanding of what slave is, helping the Jewish folks in the congregation reclaim the rich heritage of a really wonderful picture, although challenging, even in our culture today, of viewing ourselves as bond servants, as some English translations put it, to King Jesus. Most of the translations, uh, use the word Christ, and we often wrestle today with that being some sort of name. It is a messianic title. Uh, some translations today, like N.T. writes uh, the Bible for everyone, and in his translations, re-applies uh, the word king just as a way to try and get our minds to again grasp that we don't elect Jesus. We don't really choose Jesus, although there is part of that language in Scripture your king is your king, and when your king says go, you go, and when your king says here is how we live, this is how we live. And so our first part of strengthening what would Jesus do into a stronger statement of what would Jesus have me do? What is Jesus's expectation of how I would act in line with who he is? The first is to see ourselves not simply as a servant, but really as a slave in line with Moses and Joshua and David. Think about the things that King Jesus made David do. He didn't allow him to take the quick way to get rid of Saul. In fact, he made him honor Saul's life, protecting it several times while Saul was openly trying to kill David. That doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense from a human perspective. Doesn't make sense in a ease of transition. How much longer was Israel uh, under the reign of a slightly off king? But it wasn't David's call. He was a servant. Not just a servant, he was a slave. He followed the direction of his king. One with great responsibility, one greatly honored, yes. But again, he belonged to Yahweh. 
he was totally allegiant to the values and the direction of Jesus, of God at his best moments, and he desired to do so. Moses, challenged very deeply by what the Lord had him do in going back to Egypt and then leading God's people out. And there were times when Moses said, I want to do anything else but what you've asked me to do. That would seem to make our king rather tyrannical if we don't remember what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane as our king wrestles with his father and the sovereignty of God's will and the necessity of his own sacrifice when in the garden he says, if there be any other way, but not my will. That is the epitome, the highest moment of what Paul aspires to when he calls himself a slave, using the great Jewish heritage of what it means to be one who is completely belonging to and blessed by, even as he is directed by, the living God. Second of all, do you encourage us in this great quest to be more wise and following who Jesus is and seeing his commands in the affirmative is that there's a calling uh, that we are to be those who bring good news. Again, uh, we see in the text that not only is Paul a slave, but he was called, what, to be an apostle, a witness set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God. Now, what we know is that for Paul, what this means, because of the way he is uh, brought up, not simply our current understanding uh, about personal salvation, but a grander and bigger hope, a hope for all of creation. The good news for Paul in his ears and in his heart and in his mind goes quickly back to passages which he gives overtones to throughout the book of Romans to Isaiah 40 verses 9 through 11. If you have your scriptures, I encourage you to turn to Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. It's familiar to many of us. Uh, Go up on the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that Paul uses here for good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who have young. The good news is that a God who is going to address the broken and fallenness and evil in the world has come. That the fulcrum of history will change and that God will bring mercy and justice into his creation. The good news is everything that's gone wrong will be set right. 
And to those who have endured, like the Jewish folks who'd been kicked out of Rome for having a discussion, which apparently may have spilled into the streets on occasion, being kicked out, loss of property, no way to respond, no justice for them. Paul knows what it is to pray that the good news is not just simply that I will, in some uh, Greek sense, be taken off to some paradise someplace else as a shade, but that in this world, our God comes and brings his recompense and his power, and he will set things right. That's good news for Paul. That's good news for us. It is also passages like Isaiah 50. What is the good news that Paul brings that he is a witness to, that he is a bondservant to? Chapter 50, verses 7, sorry, 52, 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who, put, who publishes salvation for Zion. Your God reigns. The voice of the watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see. They return, the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm, and before the eyes of the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's the good news that stirs the heart and soul of Paul to encourage the people in Rome. That the good news is that the divisions between them are being broken down and formed into a new community. That new creation is possible. And that what we will do as his church is be mindful of the other. The power of Paul's uh, encouragements in the latter chapters is how we care for one another, thinking of the other more and carefully and gently, gently leading one another in the care of Christ. And so the first part of Paul's declaration of who he is is that he knows that his will is not his own, that it must be transformed by his king, that he sees himself as belonging wholly to God and therefore bending to God's will because it is right and good. And he is then a witness, a witness to the good news that is not something we create in our mind. What would good news mean to me? But a clear biblical definition of the setting right of all things that have been wrong that the removal of evil is in process and will be completed. And we had better, if we want to be in line with the king, praying for good news for all. And lastly, which gives the sermon its title, Promised Beforehand. See, there is a rule and reign promised beforehand in the prophets. That what mood motivates Paul is that the death and resurrection of Jesus that we'll look at a little bit more in verses three and four next week, 
that this is the proof. It didn't catch Paul's attention right off the bat. It was an absurdity to both Greek and to Jew, to Roman alike, that somebody who was crucified could be the greatest evidence of the righteous acts of God that somebody who was crucified and raised from the dead could ever be vindicated as anything but a failure. But from the beginning, from the promise in Genesis 3.15, we know that it was going to come through suffering. We know that the heel would be bruised before the head was crushed. We know that all of this runs contrary to the worldly sense of what power is. Paul doesn't come in saying, I am a great apostle, a free man who studied all of this, and therefore you should listen to me because of the letters behind my name. I am a free thinker. He comes in and says, I am a slave to the one who reigns who came through the fire and the blood, who came through death itself that we might have life and that justice and mercy will be reestablished and it starts in the way that we treat one another within the community of faith. This is where the evidence that evil is now a short timer, that its time has been clearly delineated, We are the evidence, the first fruits, he will say. The quote at the beginning of your worship folder from Gordon Fee, a uh, wonderful scholar with uh, traditions more in the Pentecostal movement. He's a great uh, expounder of the power of the Holy Spirit in Paul. He says this, Romans, as I see it, is totally taken up with Paul's passion for the gospel, whose goal is the creation, by redemption, of a single people for God's name, out of Jew and Gentile together. Some of the pain we're experiencing in our country right now is that we created an us and them, that we saw differences that the gospel was meant to heal and the differences that were meant to be maintained celebrated in every uh, tribe and nation and tongue. We are wrestling with the consequences of not understanding the depths and the power of God's desire to create one people for his glory out of all the peoples of the earth how we can embrace, even from this powerful opening of the book, the hope and the promise that the difficulties are worth going through, that all of the challenges we face as we interact with people different than us are the same challenges the church has faced in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and in Jerusalem. We stand in a glorious tradition of muddling through the difficulties well of what it means to ask the question and apply the answer. What would my King, King Jesus, have me do? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful. We ask that we might delight in the promises of what it means. And Lord, celebrate the stories of your people who are modeling every day in so many places and so many churches around this nation. We pray in our own denomination for the work of the New City Fellowship Churches, which are desiring again to encourage us the implications and joys of what it means to be your people, one people, and yet wonderfully diverse, with one Lord, one fellowship, one King. We pray that you would honor the desire of our hearts, Lord, to follow you and to delight in your kingdom. We pray it for Christ's name and the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.